The title of this lecture is a modification of Birds, Beasts and Flowers, the title of Lawrence's 1923 poetry collection. And clearly it substitutes children for flowers, not because we're not... You'd like everyone in the world to be destroyed, said Ursula. I should indeed. And the world empty of people. Yes, truly. You yourself, don't you find it a beautiful, clean thought? A world empty of people? Just uninterrupt, uninterrupted grass and a hare sitting up? But, she objected, you'd be dead yourself, so what good would it do you? I would die like a shot to know that the earth would really be cleaned of all the people. It is the most beautiful and freeing thought. Then there would never be another foul humanity created for a universal defilement. No, said Ursula, there would be nothing. What? Nothing? Just because humanity was wiped out? You flatter yourself. There'd be everything. But how if there were no people? Do you think that creation depends on man? It merely doesn't. There are trees and the grass and birds. I much prefer to think of the lark rising up, and up in the morning upon a humanless world. Man is a mistake. He must go. There is the grass and hares and adders and the unseen hosts, actual angels that go about freely when the dirty humanity doesn't interrupt them. Very nice. If only man was swept off the face of the earth, creation would go on so marvellously with a new start, non-human. Man is one of the mistakes of creation, like the ichthyosauri. But man will never be gone, she said, with insidious, diabolical knowledge of the horrors of persistence. The world will go with him. Oh no, he answered, not so. I believe in the proud angels and the demons that are our forerunners. They will destroy us because we are not proud enough. The Ishtiosauri were not proud. They crawled and floundered as we do. And besides, look at the elderflowers and bluebells. They are a sign that pure creation takes place, even the butterfly. But humanity never gets beyond the caterpillar stage. It rots in the chrysalis. It will never have wings. It is anti-creation, like monkeys and baboons. I mentioned in the lecture on religion in week three that Lawrence, in several respects, resembled Levitel's story. The views expressed here by Birkin, and particularly the comment about the Ishtiosauri, may have been influenced by him. In the late 1880s, Tolstoy, who was turning 60, suddenly turned against sex altogether. He thought it best if people did not marry, and if they did, to have sexual relations only at distant intervals. These views are voiced by Korsmyshev, the central character of Kreutzerava Sonata, the Kreutzer Sonata. Critics of this novella pointed out to him that if Korsmyshev's recommendations were to be followed, Humanity would die out, since deaths would exceed births. Tolstoy responded, What will die out is man the animal. What a terrible misfortune that would be. Just as the animals of prehistoric times died out, so probably will the human animal. Let it die out. 
I am no more sorry for this two-legged animal than I am for the ischthyosaurs, etc. What I care about is that true life should not die out. The love of creatures that are able to love. It's remarkable how Laurentian this passage sounds, and it is in fact far more characteristic of Lawrence than it is of Tolstoy. These two passages that I've just read approve of humanity's existence only in proportion to its worth. Both men clearly were sharply conscious of Darwin's theories, and rather than conflating them with romantic nationalism and producing such theories of statehood as fascism and Nazism, they retained Darwin's categorization in terms of species. But in Tolstoy's comment, there is a contradiction. By following Borsbyshev's prescriptions, humanity will die out precisely by virtue of becoming more true in its way of living and loving. Birkin, on the other hand, implies that the survival of the fittest works out not, as Darwin argued, in terms of environmental factors and sexual selection, but in terms of spiritual selection. The spiritually rotten will die out. Lawrence did not live on to the age of nuclear weaponry and did not conceive of a sudden active suicide of humanity, but a slow, passive one. There is something of the animal rights campaigner in Birkin's picture of the post-human world with a hair sitting up. Not that Lawrence was a campaigner for the rights of animals or any other being. But it was because he had such high standards of humanity that he had such contempt for it during the First World War. On the whole, hares were doing a far better job of being hares than people were of being people, and the more shame them. Because people had failed to be themselves, had been inhuman, they might be superseded by a post-human or non-human world. But this linguistic dichotomy is complicated by the fact that Lawrence did not think that being merely human was sufficient for mankind. To be fully human was also to be open to and to incorporate the non-human. It is not clear to me if he thought that this was true of other species, whether to be a hare, to be fully alive, one must also embrace non-hare reality. But he certainly demanded it of us. The word inhuman in his usage is therefore one of those words which in Lawrence can go either way. Mechanisation is inhuman. Gudrun perceives that the men of Beldover live in a strong, dangerous underworld, underworld, mindless, inhuman. They also sound like strange machines, heavy, oiled. When Gerald takes over as the manager of his father's mind, he has a will to, quote, accomplish a purpose irresistibly, inhumanly. It was this inhuman principle and the mechanism he wanted to construct that inspired Gerald with an almost religious exaltation. The world of ice and snow in which he dies is inhuman. Ursula saves herself and Birkin by fleeing from it. But... As I say, inhuman also, it denotes that which humanity must embrace in order to survive and develop. Birkin conceives of the plane on which he wants himself and Ursula to meet. There could be no obligation because there is no standard for action there, because the understanding has been reaped from that plane. It is quite inhuman 
So there can be no calling to book in any form whatsoever, because one is outside pale of all that is accepted, and nothing known applies. Correspondingly, when they have their ecstatic experience in the chapter called Excurse, Ursula feels that this was released at last. This was neither love nor passion. It was the daughters of men coming back to the sons of God, the strange, inhuman sons of God who are in the beginning. Humanity, then, is bordered by two kinds of inhumanity, one of which it should shun, the other of which represents its consummation. But just as Birkin and Ursula do not spend all their time in ecstasy, nor should this kind of inhumanity overwhelm an individual's being. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that Lawrence saw the Teuto-Italian split as one of the fundamental binaries of European history, and the Italians as overwhelmingly human, myriad people, all rattling their personalities. The Germans, on the other hand, worshipped faceless trees. The German is a tree soul, and his gods are not human. Neither extreme represents full human potentiality. As I suggested last week, one should combine the Italian and the German, the human and the inhuman. And it follows that contact with animals is good for humans. Tom Brangwen realises that he must marry Lydia while sitting with the, the ewes at lambing time. A few years later, he only manages to calm down the five-year-old Anna, who is screaming for her mother, to take her to, by taking her to see the cows being given their supper. Mellors and Lady Chapley first meet at a pheasant coop and have sex after she has handled one of the chicks. But animals are not just soporific or aphrodisiac. They can valuably humble men by asserting themselves against what would nowadays be called speciesism, the human failure to recognise the intrinsic value of other species. We see this in Lawrence's most anthologised poem, The Snake. The first-person speaker finds a poisonous snake drinking from his water trough in Taormina, Sicily. Was it humility to feel so honoured? I felt so honoured. He therefore cannot kill it, even though, quote, the voice of my education said to me, he must be killed. When the snake then goes back in for a crack in the wall whence he came, the speaker finally throws a log at him and immediately regrets it. I despised myself and the, verses, the voices of my accursed human education, and I thought of the albatross. I had missed my chance with one of the lords of life. There is a less famous but far funnier poem in which the speaker is also humbled by an animal, in this case a bat. He comes into his Florentine room mid-morning and finds a bat flying around it in circles. He opens the window and flicks his white handkerchief about, but it will not leave the room because it is repelled by the sunlight outside. After a long battle, he finally does manage to get the bat to go outside, but that evening he ruminates. I believe he chirps, Pipistrello, seeing me here on this terrace, writing. And then in italics, there he sits, the loud, long one. But I am greater than he. I escaped him. On both occasions, the speaker is learning to respect the natural aristocrat amongst animals. 
Lawrence's theory of the aristocracy of living things is first suggested in the study of Thomas Hardy of 1914. The title might lead one to expect a study of Thomas Hardy, but on the first page one tumbles headlong into Lawrence's ontology. To wit, the prime function of a living thing is to be itself and to reach into the unknown. Beings may be ranked according to how close they are to the growing tip amongst their kind. Lawrence's human and animal characters are often close to the growing tip, and in this respect, they are equals. In 1921, Lawrence published an extraordinary collection of poems called Tortoises. All six poems are about tortoises, and the last two are about their sex love. The poem Tortoise Shout muses on the sound a male tortoise makes at the point of orgasm and reflects. Torn to become whole again after long seeking for what is lost. The same cry from the tortoise as from Christ. The Osiris cry of abandonment. That which is whole torn asunder. That which is in part finding its whole again throughout the universe. Christ and Osiris, and of course those two came together in that late story, The Escaped Cock, as we saw in the third week. Christ and Osiris and the tortoise are all alike in being ruptured and seeking wholeness. As we might expect, a novel which has as much contempt for the majority of English humankind as women in love, it shows a great interest in animals. They generate two chapter titles, Mino and Rabbit, and frequently and suddenly fill the narrative consciousness. Mino is Birkin's cat. Birkin, Ursula and the novel are distracted from their conversation when the Mino goes out into the garden. The young cat trotted lordly down the path, waving his tail. He was an ordinary tabby with white paws, a slender young gentleman. A crouching, fluffy, brownish-grey cat was stealing up the side of the fence. The Mino walked statelily up to her with manly nonchalance. She crouched before him and pressed herself on the ground in humility. He, going statelily on his slim legs, walked after her, then suddenly, for pure excess, gave her a light cuff with his paw on the side of her face. He does this several times, and Ursula, who is watching this, objects. Birkin defends him, by arguing that the minor must assert himself as the fate of this fluffy female. The passage uses the language of aristocracy persistently, as though emphasising that the terms have been wrested away from their usual positions and endowed upon more deserving tomcats. A couple of chapters earlier, we have another example of a male exerting his will over a female to Ursula's disapproval. This male is a homo sapien, Gerald, and the female is the mare. The sisters are waiting at a level crossing when Gerald trots up and forces his terrified mare to remain by the level crossing whilst a long freight train passes by. He sat, glistening and obstinate, forcing the wheeling mare, which spun and swerved like a wind, yet could not get out of the grasp of his will. Both man and horse were sweating with violence. Hermione, on the other hand, reverses these gender roles. When she sees the Mino, quote, she lifted the cat's head with her long, slow, white fingers, not letting him drink, 
holding him in her power. It was always the same, this joy in power she manifested, particularly power over any male being. She kept her finger on the softly planted paw of the cat, and her voice had the same whimsical, humorous note of bullying. Gerald is also being a bully, although he is successful in dominating the mare, whereas the mino blinked forbearingly with a male, bored expression licking his whiskers. What is noteworthy in both cases is that the humans and animals are pitted against each other in the contest of souls, and there is continuity between them. And yet, at times, the novel's narrative questions human understanding of animals. Although the question is raised by and in relation to the characters, since the novel is written by a human, it necessarily reflects on the novel itself. Halfway through the novel, Gudrun and Gerald struggle to control a frenzied and very strong rabbit. After they've put it down in a garden, it flies round and round several times, then suddenly stops and starts nibbling some grass. Gudrun observes her arm is bleeding. It's mad. It's most decidedly mad. Gerald responds, the question is, what is madness? I don't suppose it's rabbit mad. Don't you think it is, she asked. No, that's what it is to be a rabbit. Gerald is sure, yet Bismarck is repeatedly described as I wonder, a mystère, and the narrative hesitates to make any judgment as to the sanity or otherwise of this rabbit. Distrust of anthropomorphism is finally made explicit in an incident between the two sisters. One day, as they are walking along a lane, they see a robin singing shrilly and self-importantly. Gudrun grins and comments, isn't he a little Lloyd George of the air? Ursula agrees and, quote, then for days Ursula saw the persistent, obtrusive birds as stout, short politicians lifting up their voices from the platform, little men who must make themselves heard at any cost. But even from this, there came the revulsion. Some yellow hammers suddenly shot along the road in front of her, and they looked so uncanny and inhuman, like flaring yellow darts shooting through the air on some weird living errand, that she said to herself, after all, it is impudence to call them little Lloyd Georges. They are really unknown to us. They are unknown forces. It is impudent to look at them as though they were the same as human beings. They are of another world. How stupid anthropomorphism is. Gudrun is really impudent, insolent, making her the measure of everything, making everything come down to human standards. Rupert is quite right. Human beings are boring, painting the universe with their own image. The universe is non-human, thank God. Yet many of the novel's representations of animals, notably the aristocratic Mino, have done precisely this, painted animals with the image of human beings. In this respect, the novel has different modes. I argued in the first week's lecture on consciousness that the novel's characterisation has two aspects, a realistic and a non-realistic mode, in the latter of which speech and action partake of the same nature. 
Ursula's objections to anthropomorphism, like her objections to Birkin's preaching, belong to the realistic aspect of the novel. But within the novel's non-realist mode, it can describe the Mino as a young lord without hypocrisy, because the Mino is not a real cat, but the novel's construction. The term lord is being used as a metaphor, and metaphors are what art asserts the liberty to employ. Nonetheless, the novel points towards real crowd tomcats, and purports to describe what such cats are like. Contrast this with the artistry displayed by Lurke in his bronze statue of a horse. The girl sitting on it is naked, squirming, trying to hide her nakedness. Quote, but there was no hiding. The horse stood stock still, stretched in a kind of start. It was a massive, magnificent stallion, rigid with pent-up power. Its neck was arched and terrible like a sickle. Its flanks were pressed back, rigid with power. Gudrun pays homage to it, but Ursula challenges. Why did you make the horse so stiff? It is stiff as a block. Stiff? He repeated, at arms, in arms at once. Yes, look how stock and stupid and brutal it is. Horses are sensitive, quite delicate and sensitive, really. Wissen Sie, he said, with an insulting patience and condescension in his voice, that horse is a certain form, part of a whole form. It is part of a work of art, a piece of form. It is not a picture of a friendly horse to which you give a lump of sugar, do you see? Ursula is angry. But it is a picture of a horse, nevertheless. As you like. It is not a picture of a cow, certainly. Here Gudrun broke in, flushed and brilliant, anxious to avoid any more of this, any more of Ursula's foolish persistence in giving herself away. What do you mean by, it is a picture of a horse, she cried at her sister. What do you mean by, a horse? You mean an idea you have in your head and which you want to see represented. There is another idea altogether, quite another idea. Call it a horse if you like, or say it is not a horse. I'm just as much right to say that your horse isn't a horse, that it's the falsity of your own makeup. Ursula wavered, baffled. Then her words came. But why does he have this idea of horse? She said, I know it is his idea. I know it is a picture of himself, really. Lurka snorted with rage. A picture of myself, he repeated in derision. This is the Frau. That is a Kunstwerk, a work of art. It is a work of art. It is a picture of nothing, of absolutely nothing. It has nothing to do with anything but itself. It has no relation with the everyday world. There is no connection between them, absolutely none. And to translate one into the other is worse than foolish. It is a darkening of all counsel a making of confusion everywhere. Do you see, you must not confuse the relative work of action with the absolute world of art. That you must not do. Gudrun supports this demonic restatement of Oscar Wilde with reference to her own art, tiny sculptures of birds and animals. Ursula was silent after this outburst. She was furious. 
It isn't a word of it true, all of this harangue you have made me, she replied flatly. The horse is a picture of your own stop, stupid brutality, and the girl was a girl you loved and tortured and then ignored. Gudrun is furious that her sister rushes in where angels would fear to tread, but the rhetoric of the scene favours Ursula, who lacks the category of the aesthetic, over the aesthetes themselves. The novel grants most of the animals which it sculpts assertive subjectivity, even whilst describing them in human terms. It is consistent with this attitude that, conversely, animals can be used as symbols for human characteristics. Lawrence's shorter works, in particular, use them in this way. In the lecture on Christianity, I mentioned the man who died. I summarised the plot that Christ comes back to life after his crucifixion, has an affair with the priestess of Isis, and then wanders on in the world. I didn't discuss the source of the story's alternative title, The Escaped Cock. The story opens with a peasant couple who live near Jerusalem. They own a cock which is proud and strong so much so that they fear it will fly away from them. So they tie it up by the leg by a piece of string. The cock is distraught. He can only have the hens he wants when they choose to walk within his ambit. But one day he breaks the, the string and escapes. At the very same moment, the man who died wakes up in his tomb, which is nearby. Once he's rolled the stone away and found that particular peasant family, he helps the peasant to catch the cock and is sheltered in their house until he is fully better, he's recovered from his wounds, and then he pays to take the cock with him. So they venture into the world together. Soon afterwards, the man who died leaves the cock at an inn where he is staying, where it has rule over a goodly number of hens, and then Jesus goes on to find the equivalent for himself. When Lawrence negotiated this story's publication, the publisher, Charles Lahr, asked for the title to be changed from The Escaped Cock to The Man Who Died. And Lawrence eventually agreed, insisting, though, that the original title should be retained as the subtitle. This projected edition failed to appear, and the next month, Lawrence died. The first English edition was published by Secker in 1931 as The Man Who Died, a title that on its own was never approved by Lawrence. What is interesting is that Lawrence insisted that the animal who was Christ's correlate and familiar should carry the title rather than he himself. The title The Man Who Died, The Man, Not the God, is already iconoclastic in precisely the way that the risen Christ himself is. But the escaped cop pushes the point a step further. So far from being God, this man now wants more to resemble a cop. As he leaves the priestess behind, we can almost see him shake his proud coxcomb and hear him crow over his conquest. Animal analogies also play part in some of Lawrence's earlier fictions. The novella The Ladybird was finished in 1921. A young married couple, sorry, a young married woman, Daphne, crucially not um, as part of the couple, visits a Hungarian count who is lying wounded in an army hospital in England. Eventually he awakens her to what this novella calls night living, which is a dark but pure sexuality 
which contrasts sharply with that which she has with her mild, loving, blonde husband. This Count Dionysus is, like his Greek namesake, repeatedly likened to animals. She finds him so full of life in his own little animal way. The narrator notes that his fine black hair grew uncut over his small animal ears. His family crest bears the ladybird, which is associated with virginity through its connection to Our Lady, but which he also considers to be a descendant of the Egyptian scarab people. Once he and Daphne have started an affair, he tells her, you are the night, you are the night wife of the ladybird. The connection of an animal with an object of Egyptian worship and the Hungarian coat of arms places the story itself in a long tradition of characterizing animals in terms of spiritual principles. This story was published in the same collection as another called The Fox in 1923. In this story, two young women keep a farm together. They get on well with each other, but they find the farming difficult, and their chickens are poached by a fox. <laughs> I should say the context of this is the First World War, when a lot of young women found themselves without men to live with and set up home together. So this is an example of two women who set up in a farm. But they, they're not very good at it, and they find their chickens are being poached by a fox. One day, the woman, the woman who's called March, sees the fox face to face. Their eyes meet, quote, and he knew her. She was spellbound. She knew he knew her. Her soul failed her. And then as she goes, she saw his brush held smooth like a feather. She saw his white buttocks twinkle. Given that this is a Lawrence story, we know better than to ignore any reference to twinkling buttocks. It is a sign of good things to come. Sure enough, some days later, a young soldier returning from the First World War turns up at their farmhouse and ends up lodging with the two women. When March first sees him, she freezes. To March, he was the fox. Whether it was the thrusting forward of his head or the glisten of fine-whitish fine hairs on the ruddy cheekbones or the bright, keen eyes that can, that can never be said, but the boy was to her the fox, and she could not see him otherwise. Harry proposes to March, and she accepts him, but Bamford, the other woman, is wholly opposed to the match. In one of the least realistic plot twists in the whole of Lawrence's fiction, he kills Bamford whilst cutting down a tree, the tree lands on top of her, which leaves March free to marry her fox, which she does. Marsh's spiritual life, it is implied, is saved by leaving her purely human, purely female household and letting an animal into her. At this stage, I just want to step back a moment to Lawrence's life and see how these attitudes to nature, want a better word, were shaped by it. He grew up in a coal mining town just outside Nottingham. It was small enough that the open country was a short walk from any of the houses he lived in, but large enough that Lawrence felt that this countryside was threatened. He is, in fact, one of the most ecologically-minded writers of the early 20th century, and it is one source of much current interest in his work. Those who knew him noted his love of nature. At university, botany was the only subject he enjoyed studying. 